Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Thursday, February 16th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by U.S. correspondent Jacob Magid and real estate writer Danielle Nagler. How are you? Hello to you both. Good morning, Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Hi there. We'll talk about how Netanyahu's coalition partners have scuttled the chance of any invites for him to the U.S. and UAE. Uh, Palestinian Authority at the UN, as well as Israel's earthquake preparedness and the new B'Tselel Art School campus in Jerusalem. Before we jump into all of that, let's take a very quick break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K, lawfirm.com, or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement, and past results are no guarantee of future performance. We have a quick report from... Knesset correspondent Tal Schneider, currently in Kiev with Foreign Minister Eli Cohen. Let's hear what Tal has to say. Yes, hello. Good morning, Jessica from Kiev. We are now traveling on the bus from uh, Kiev train station to, um, you know, to the city. Foreign Affairs Minister Eli Cohen flew last night from Israel to the Polish border and then together with uh, his entourage and uh, reporters on a train for 10 hours, a night train inside Ukraine and then into Kiev. And today has uh, several meetings, um, obviously a meeting, a, a very important meeting with the president Zelensky and a meeting with the foreign affairs minister and the mayor of Kiev and also a visit to Babiyar, a very packed day for 12 hours here on the grounds and then back on the train on a night train and back to Israel by Friday. Some pressure came from the Americans with respect to Israel's participation and Israel's uh, ability to be more, you know, coming forward with help and assistance and, 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 and statements. Uh, as you remember, uh, Secretary Blinken was in Israel a couple of weeks ago and said out loud, you know, in a press conference and also in, in uh, closed door meetings, he said that he wants to see Israel's more engaged. Um, Zelensky might ask for Iron Dome or other um, other aircrafts to be granted sent to Ukraine uh, Israel did not did not want to do it until now but you know we might see a change of policy we don't know that yet the, the statement with uh, the president of uh, Ukraine Zelensky will not be broadcast live I think maybe because of Israel's concerns with respect to you know what the president of Ukraine might say he, he may you know he may protest Israel don't want to be embarrassed uh, in a live uh, broadcast so um, other meetings you know we, we will see those meetings and obviously as, as, as I said uh, very important tour at the Babiyar and uh, meeting with the uh, Jewish leaders from the from the community here. Thanks for that, Tal. Now let's get back to our regular podcast. 
Jacob, Netanyahu doesn't seem to be receiving any party invites these days because no one seems to like his coalition partners. Even the Negev summit is on hold. Is that for the same reason? What's going on over there? Yeah, so it's uh, roughly the same reason. Um, I spoke with a U.S. official and a Middle East diplomat over the past couple of days who have said that plans to invite Netanyahu to the U.S. and to the UAE have been put on indefinite hold. I think both of these countries have been very alarmed by the ongoing violence in East Jerusalem and the West Bank and prefer to wait and see how Israel handles the month of Ramadan, which is coming up next month, before moving forward with any lavish uh, red carpet ceremonies for Netanyahu, is what these two officials told me. So Netanyahu talked actually about making his first visit abroad to the UAE during the election campaign, and then shortly after entering office, his his office got in touch with the UAE about securing a visit two weeks within the first two weeks. But then National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir paid a visit to the Temple Mount, and the, the, a couple of days later, the UAE informed the Netanyahu government that the, the visit was put on hold. They officially said that this was due to scheduling purposes, but the Middle East diplomat that I spoke with said it was very much related to the to the Temple Mount move. As for the U.S., um, Netanyahu's office has also expressed its desire to U.S. counterparts that it wants to make a visit as early as this month, but that's very much not happening, according to the U.S. official I spoke with. So far, the U.S. has sufficed with sending its own very senior officials, Secretary Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, um, and those visits were focused on pushing the sides to take steps to calm tensions ahead of Ramadan. And they thought that they had succeeded in doing so. Um, Blinken had dispatched a couple of his t- top aides to stay back and make sure that some of these steps that the U.S. was encouraging were, would be implemented. And there was, an, there was a feeling that there was going to be some sort of pause, at least just temporarily, not indefinitely, but temporarily, at least through, maybe through Ramadan, of major steps by Israel and the Palestinians that would further inflame tensions. But then last Friday's terror attack happened in Jerusalem, this car ramming in which three people were killed, and the government, led, with calls led by Itamar Ben-Gvir and, and Finance Minister Basala Smotrich, demanded for there to be a price extracted for this. Um, and that price, not in terms of security, but actually in terms of further entrenching Israel's presence in the West Bank. That was the, the route the government tried to take. And Netanyahu's office has tried to frame this as actually, well, I was able to limit the construction that they're approving. It was supposed to be much more, and 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 now it's actually only ten thousand. It was supposed to be more than that. It was supposed to be more than nine outposts. But I don't think anyone's really buying it. And also, they also tried to say that uh, well, these outposts won't be legalized for several years, and same with the settlements won't actually be built for several years. So there are all these caveats that are put that are tried to I think lighten the damage of some of these steps that Israel's taking. But the U.S. for its part is not. Um, buying it. And I think the official I spoke with said that though that this this visit for Netanyahu wasn't really on our radar right now anyway, given the various other priorities we have, it very much isn't on our radar anymore, given these latest steps. Um, and that's just in the U.S. and the UAE with those two visits. And then there's also other ramifications for, for some of these policies, um, be it, be it the, the NEGA forum. The initiative that was started by the previous government, it brings together both the U.S. and Israel and, and the various countries that Israel has ties with, save for Jordan, which they're still trying to get. But um, they were supposed to hold their second ever ministerial meeting in March in Morocco. Um, This wasn't formally decided, but it was largely understood to be the case by various players. Um, But now that too has been put on the back burner as I think the rest of the governments are similarly in this wait and see approach, making sure that 
they don't want to be meeting in, in Morocco for this festive event, A, without some real tangible initiative that comes out of it, which they don't think the Israeli government is willing to agree to, and B, with, with, with tensions between Israelis and Palestinians happening in the backdrop. So I think uh, we're seeing a lot of ramifications for Netanyahu, who was very adamant in, in making the Abraham Accords and, and specifically trying to get Saudi Arabia to come on board as the main foreign policy agenda. He's really being hampered by either it's his coalition partners or the government that he's leading himself um, are making it much more difficult to achieve. Hmm. we got to wonder how that feels right now. Okay, and then... Tell us what the Palestinian Authority is preparing right now for the UN Security Council. There's movement and action, quiet action for the moment, that is taking place right now. Correct. So, um, as I said, the, this the announcement on Sunday by Israel that it was authorizing these nine outposts, um, this is this has pushed the, I think, why the U.S. is frustrated is that it's now spending its time on, over the past day or so, lobbying countries at the UN not to support a resolution that this resolution that was drafted on Wednesday by the UAE, it was pushed by the Palestinian Authority, that this uh, it's calling Israel to immediately halt, halt all settlement activities in the West Bank and also condemns various moves of annexations. Um, so this is what the US is spending its time doing and I think this is where the frustration stems because on the one hand they kind of probably agree with uh, the resolution in, in principle that because they're against outposts and settlement expansion. On the other hand, they don't view the UN as the right body to be adjudicating the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that's why for now they're trying to prevent this measure from being from being passed. Um, but I think uh, it it's, remains to be un, to be seen whether the U.S. will succeed in getting enough countries to come down from this effort. Because all it needs is nine. All the Palestinians need is nine countries out of the fifteen in the Security Council in order to force a vote and require the U.S. to veto. Um, so we'll see over the next couple of days what the, what will unfold, but the U.S. is in intensive talks with the various parties to try to bring them down from this effort. Hmm. Okay. It'll be interesting to follow that. Thanks, Jacob. Danielle, we are all still reeling from the earthquake that hit Syria and Turkey last week. And of course, it was actually experienced here in different parts in Israel on a much lesser grade. You've been following this story in terms of Israeli building and construction, what is Israel's earthquake preparedness as far as we can tell for the moment? So on the one hand, Israel's recognized for decades that it has a vulnerability to earthquakes, particularly down the Jordan Rift Valley on the east of the country. And Israel in 1980 introduced a building standard to ensure that anything that was built post-1980 would be earthquake resistant. Obviously, that hasn't been tested yet because no earthquake has hit. But in theory, everything post-1980 has the reinforcement that's necessary to ensure that when seismic waves hit, a building will vibrate uh, in response to that stress and not sort of stand firm and therefore crumble as an earthquake hits it. But Israel also in uh, 2005 recognized that it needed to incentivize doing something around older buildings. It has a lot of older residential blocks that are three stories to eight stories high right across the country and were built at times of sort of major immigration in the 1950s, 1960s. And these buildings are made of concrete and are very much not earthquake ready. So the government brought in this framework known as TAMA 38, which was designed to encourage developers to reinforce the foundations of older buildings. And in return, the developers got building rights to add 
an extra story or two onto the top to create new penthouses to upgrade the existing housing. Um, and this was kind of the carrot to uh, persuade them to reinforce foundations with a focus when the legislation was drawn up on the areas that are most vulnerable to earthquakes, i.e. Tiberias, Betchean, Kiryat Shimona, these big cities in the east of the country. Tama 38 has proved very popular, but it has done very little to reinforce buildings in the areas of greatest need because developers understood that this was a valuable break that they could uh, renovate inner city buildings and then have a couple of apartments which they could sell off to to make profit from. But house prices in Tiberias, Betchean, etc. were not sufficiently high to make this attractive. So the result has been the majority of these renovation projects and earthquake readiness, readiness uh, reinforcement has happened in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, not the areas of greatest need. My mother-in-law's building in Jerusalem. <laughs> exactly. And on top of that, there are obviously issues with public buildings, many of which also date from before 1980. And schools and hospitals built before 1980 are also not necessarily reinforced and earthquake ready. Um, since the shockwaves were felt from the Turkish-Syrian earthquake, there has obviously been a more focus on how effective has the existing program been and what are the areas of vulnerability going forward. There was a large meeting last week to consider this, uh, and the agreement was that the existing framework doesn't work, but that there is no better idea currently on the table. So there is work ongoing to try to figure out how to get the free market that is private developers, to undertake projects in the east of the country and to offer earthquake reinforcement. And there is a, a, a major recognition that there are hundreds of thousands of homes which are not currently earthquake ready. But a new solution is needed to, if we're to ensure that private contractors take on those projects or a major budget is required for the cities like Tiberias, where it's estimated 50% of homes are probably not earthquake ready. Um, and public public money is going to be needed to address that problem. Hmm. Okay. Hoteliers, maybe. Hotel owners. Okay, thanks for that, Danielle. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Jacob will tell us about a very emotional statement made by Orthodox journalist Yair Cherky the other night on social media. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Four four. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag 
in a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Jacob, uh, on Tuesday night, I believe it was, uh, that Orthodox journalist Yair Cherki, very well-known um really all over the place in terms of his journalistic work. He wrote a very open and honest statement on social media telling the world that he loves men and God and that the two are not contradictory. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Yair Sherki is definitely a household name, I think, to most Israelis. He is, serves as the religious affairs correspondent on Channel 12, which is Israel's largest TV news network. And he, I think, has come known also for even the, the payouts that he, ha- he has in his side locks, which are often sported by Hasidic men. Um, so definitely seen as someone who personifies orthodox, orthodoxy in Israel and has been able to try to explain the Hasidic world and the Haredi world to the broader audience who is less familiar with it. He also grew up in a, a very prominent family in Jerusalem. He, his father is the rabbi of a, the one of well-known yeshiva known, known as Mechon Meir. Um, and this is, this, this is his background. I think it very much shocked people when he came out of the closet on Tuesday and explaining that not only is he, is he gay, but he's, he is and remains religious. Um, and I think this makes him probably the most prominent person from that world to come out. Obviously, there are lots of people who have, who have come out for, and, and, and came from religious backgrounds, but the, the, the fact that he's emphatically saying that he wants to remain religious or plans to remain religious, I think is something very unique and something we haven't really seen from someone in this stature. And I think what, based off of the, the responses to this post, which was incredibly emotional, you saw what was, what was shocking was to see the dozens of, first of all, thousands of responses uh, of, of encouragement, but also specifically dozens of lawmakers in the Knesset from all across various parties, from Likud on the right and to, of course, Labor and Merit on the left, of MKs, very prominent ones, former prime ministers, offering their love and support to Sherki. Even minis- even lawmakers from the Otsmai Yudit party, who Ben Gvir is their their chairman, and he's protested outside of of Jerusalem pride parades before. So it was it was quite something to see. I think in some ways of the progress that we're seeing in this issue. At the same time, even as the government is including inclusive of forces like Noam, who are trying to kind of maybe arguably strip rights away from people like Yair Sherki. But it was, I think, a heartwarming um, response that we saw. And, and I think uh, it's possible that I, there will be people, young people, young Haredi people who have long looked up to, to Yair Sherki and who might also be in the closet and, and are able to find the strength to, to also follow in his footsteps upon seeing someone that they, they relate to that made the same decision as them after a long time feeling that it wasn't really possible. So I think that that this post will have a lot of impact um, moving forward for, for young for young religious gay people. And more power to Yair Shirky for doing it right now, Dafka right now, as we say. So yeah. On Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day, <laughs> right, right, right. 
Okay, thanks a lot for that, Jacob. Danielle, finally, let's finish up with your recent tour of the new B'Tselel Art School campus in downtown Jerusalem, returning to their very first original home, but with a very different look. Tell us about that piece of real estate. So B'Tselel Arts and Design School is one of the oldest Israeli educational institutions. It was founded in 1906, and since the 1990s, it's happily lived alongside the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus. But... At the moment, it's involved in transitioning back into the centre of Jerusalem. It has a new glass and concrete building, which stands right next to the Jerusalem Municipality building. And as of next semester, most of the students will be based there. It's an interesting building because it, it very much tries to interact with its surroundings. It frames the most astonishing view of the landscape of Jerusalem. And it also challenges Jerusalem building styles because, as you will know, most most Jerusalem buildings are faced with Jerusalem stone. This building is supremely modern, has a lot of uh, pillars and is very transparent. And the architects, in fact, said, no, we don't want to face it with Jerusalem stone. What we will do is to mix cement with Jerusalem stone aggregates. And they have created a concrete which is exactly the same shade as Jerusalem stone. But the other aspiration behind the building is very much to invite the public in and to increase the connections between the students and the communities of Jerusalem. Even though obviously there is uh, that is potentially a very challenging relationship with very avant-garde students and and kind of traditional communities in Jerusalem, but Professor Adi Stern, the president of Batzalel, is very clear that he believes it is extremely important that the designers of the future interact with the many different populations of the city of Jerusalem, and there will be public spaces, public gallery spaces, a real invitation to people to look at the work that is in progress in B'Tselel. That sounds fabulous. Thank you very much, Danielle. And thank you, Jacob, for both being on today's Daily Briefing. It was good to hear what you both had to say. Glad you were here. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. We will be back on Sunday with another Daily Briefing. Have a listen tomorrow on Friday to Amanda Borshaldan's latest What Matters Now podcast. Uh, Always something interesting to hear there as well. In the meantime, have yourselves a good day and a good listen. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next time. Shalom. Shalom.